ministry and Andy. Uh, our God is truly worthy of praise. He is worthy of all the praise that we can give Him. Amen? Thank you so much uh, for being here today on the Lord's Day, uh, gathered with God's church. And today we're going to continue in this series entitled The Church. I love this series. I love uh, talking about church. Obviously, well, obviously, I mean, I'm at church all the time, and I love church. It's what I do. I love being a pastor. I love preaching the Word. I love gathering with all of you. And uh, this is because of uh, some important things that the Bible says about church that we get to live out and that we get to enjoy together. And one of those is we get to be a worshiping church. We get to gather together and we get to hear great music like that that is meant to draw our hearts into worship. We get to sing together, fellowship together. And so that's what we're going to talk to you about today, about being a worshiping church. I gave you a definition, I guess several weeks ago, that I've been trying to... I've been trying to reiterate it to you because I hope that you will commit it to memory as uh, something that is the very essence of what a local church is, and that is just a gathering of people who follow Jesus, and we unite for worship and mission, uh, and we, we gather every week on the Lord's Day. But the two things, the two primary things, if you really boil everything down that we do, is worship and mission. Two weeks ago, I talked about mission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, God has called us to live out the mission of God. And it is commanded. You are commanded to be on mission. You don't have to pray about it. You don't have to wonder if it applies to you. Yes, you are commanded to live on mission for God. But today, we're going to look at worship and really, when we look at the whole of Scripture, we see that the same principle of, a, of, a, of the commandment is that we worship. We are commanded in Scripture to worship. And so I invite you to open your copy of, uh, of God's Word as we look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Now think about worship for a minute. Why do, if, if someone was to come and ask you, uh, why, do you, why do you attend Stephen Street? You know, why do you, why do you go to church? There might be various answers. Uh, people might say, well, I like the music. Or some people say that I go to my church because I like the pastor. Or they say, oh, you know, it has a really great kids ministry or the location really works. If someone asks you why you go to church, your first and foremost answer should be, I gather with the church to worship. I gather with the church to worship. Anything that any anything other than that intention to come before God and to worship falls short of the primary motivation that we should have for gathering with God's people. Now listen, I know that some of you serve. I know that some of you really have some great friends. I, I know that there's all types of reasons that we might like coming to church and, um, and attending church. But our primary responsibility, first and foremost, is worship. If we don't get that right, then we really haven't gotten anything else right. And this means that we don't come to spectate. We come to participate. We come to participate as worshipers. We're not here to watch each other worship. You're not there to sit and observe other people worshiping on stage. You are to be a participant in worship together. You're to participate in the music. You're even to participate uh, in the sermon, even if you're not actually talking in the same way that you would be singing during the music. We come here to worship not because we want to receive something from God, 
We worship because we want to offer something to God. That is true worship. True worship is saying, I have myself and everything that I am that I am offering to God and I'm giving to Him the praise, just like the song that we just sang, that He is worthy of. And there is no one that is worthy of worship except God. No one. Now, I know that sometimes we get caught up in worshiping the things of this world. We don't call it that. But we often worship the altar of all types of things. And our hearts are drawn towards all types of things in this world. But your heart was designed to worship God and worship Him alone. And so what we're going to do is today, we're going to look at what a true worshiper is. And we're going to look at, uh, look at uh, uh, John chapter 4. Now, what I'm going to read to you today, I'm going to drop you in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with a woman at the well. And uh, have you ever walked in on someone's conversation, you kind of get in the middle of things, and you're like, wait a minute, what are y'all talking about? I'm, I'm going to kind of do, do you that way. I don't want to read the whole thing. I'm going to make reference to some of the other things that Jesus said to this woman at the well, like living water and then some other things. Um, but I'm going to kind of drop you in the middle of this conversation where Jesus is talking to this lady next to a, next to a well, and she had, she had a heart problem. And I would, I'm even going to uh, show you today that she had a worship problem. And that worship problem was not necessarily anything external, but it had a lot to do with some things that were going on in her heart. She had a thirsty heart, and she thought that relationships and religion could fix that thirsty heart. But Jesus said some things to her about how she, what she really needed was not water from the well, but she needed living water. And he talks to her a little bit about her relationship with a man that she's living with, but she's not married to, and she's had five husbands prior to him. And he kind of he gets to the nitty-gritty with her and shows her an idol that's in her heart. And then he talks to her about true worship, and then he makes an incredible statement about himself. He basically calls himself the Messiah. And usually we see Jesus only kind of revealing this to his disciples, but he, he said this uh, directly to her. So let's see what we can learn about what true worship is. All right, we're going to talk about true worship. What is what is true worship? Stand with me, if you don't mind. If you've never been to Stephen Street before, uh, we'd like to stand when we read our primary passage just because we believe that the most important thing that you'll hear, the most authoritative thing that you'll hear, comes directly from the pages of Scripture. So let's read John chapter 4, and I'll start reading, I'll start reading in, verse, uh, in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews." But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And catch that again. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit 
and truth. And I apologize, these next two verses are not on the screen, but they're important. Let me read them to you. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. Let's pray. Father, today I pray that if there is anyone here that has not truly worshipped you, not even one time in their life, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them today. God, if there are those of us here today, and I know there are, God, that we have all these hang-ups, all these barriers to truly worshiping you, God, because we're, we're kind of posturing our heart towards other things. Help us today, God. We need you in order to worship truly and properly. Help us to do that today. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, let me show you all these verses at once, okay? All these verses that I just read at once. I want to show them all to you. I want to show you that this, just the sheer number of times that the word worship appears in these verses. The word worship, the Greek word that's translated, the English term in our translation is translated worship, it only appears 13 times in the Gospel of John. In the entire Gospel of John, it only appears 13 times. Eight of them are in this passage that we just read. I think it would be understated to say that this is at least the most important passage in the book of John about worship. And I dare say that this is probably the most pointed thing that Jesus has ever said about worship and probably the most instructive thing for us um, that Jesus has ever said about worship. In fact, I think it's instructive just looking at the definition of the word worship. So I looked it up in the original language, and this, this is what it means. It means to bow down, to kneel down, or to prostrate oneself before God. So it is the idea of, uh, of, of course, the image of physically bowing down or kneeling down or completely laying down on the ground uh, but before God. Now, some of you say, well, I don't know that I really worship like that. I mean, I, you know, my knees are kind of bad. I'm getting kind of old. So to get down and kneel like that, you know, it's kind of hard. And, you know, I don't know that I've ever really seen many of you like lay out in the middle, uh, in, in the middle of the floors. You say, well, maybe I don't worship that way. Listen, this does not have to be a position of your body, but it must be, listen, it must be a posture of your heart. It has to be a posture of your heart. The the outer the, uh, the external, the outside position of your body, facial expressions, emotions, all of that type of stuff, you may or may not get that right, but what we have to get right is we have to be properly postured on the inside before God. And this means that we have a heart of, I mean, words that come to my mind, submission, adoration, awe, honor, glorifying God, magnifying God, exalting God, cherishing God, loving God. That the posture of our heart, when we're truly worshiping, the, uh, it doesn't matter how we're standing or kneeling, the posture of our heart needs to be proper before God. 
And in this passage, uh, Jesus says that God the Father is seeking true worshipers. God the Father is seeking true worshipers. Now listen, that's a catchy phrase. For Jesus to say, we're looking for true worshipers, and God the Father is looking for true worshipers. There's a lot in this passage that talks about truth, and there's a lot in this passage, obviously, that talks about uh, uh, talks about spirit. But God is seeking true worshipers. God is seeking people who, in their hearts, will prostrate themselves and bow down to Him in submission to magnify Him and to glorify Him. This means that just coming and sitting and attending a pew and singing the right song and listening to the right sermons and even living a moral life and doing all the things on the outside is not necessarily what Jesus is talking about. Jesus says God's looking for something that's true about you on the inside. He wants your heart to be devoted to Him. Now, we may find it odd. Okay, let's just say there was a human being on earth that said, you know what, I really need you to prostrate and bow down and glorify and magnify me in submission. You might would say, well, that person has an ego problem. Can you imagine if I said that? Can you imagine if I said, hey, I want you all to sing songs about me next week. Hey, I want you all to come while I'm talking, and I just want you all to all bow down at the altar to me while I'm speaking. Now, some of you are like, even saying that is sacrilegious. And you're right, it, it, it feels that way. For uh, you, would, you would think, man, what kind of ego person asks for that? And so it might follow that we would say, well, I mean, does God have some kind of ego need for us to all of all 8 billion of us on this planet and maybe upwards of 300 billion people that have ever lived on the earth for all of us? Does is, is God have some kind of ego need for us to, uh, to all exalt him and glorify him? And I would, I, I, I would say no. I would say, number one, he's worthy of it. That's one of the reasons that, that we do it is because he is worthy of it. And if we don't see that, then there's, there's a major problem. But the person that really needs God to be worshipped is us. You see, cheetahs were made to run, birds were made to fly, and human beings were designed for worship. It is part of how you were created. And that's why Jesus is saying that it needs to be something true in us that postures before God because we're, ne- we're never more happy and, and satisfied than whenever we're properly related to God and worshiping Him. So how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we accomplish true worship? And uh, different people might give you different answers. What does true worship look like? If someone came up to you on the street and said, what does true worship look like? Um, maybe some people might would say something like this, this woman at the well said. She, was, uh, she wanted to argue with Jesus over the place of worship. Uh, she, actually, she was trying to start an argument. She was trying to start a religious argument with Jesus. She basically was saying, well, me and all my family and all my ancestors, and, you know, we all worshiped on this mountain. And this was Mount Gerizim, although it doesn't say it in Scripture, or one of the mountains close by there. It was kind of the, one of the highest peaks uh, in Samaria. And he said, but you Jews, who think y'all are better than us, y'all say we ought to worship in Jerusalem, that that's the proper place. You know, she, she thought it was all about a place. I mean, is it really that simple? 
is true worship just about the building that we walk into on a, on a Sunday morning? Is it really just about going to the right location? Well, you're in a Baptist church right now, and you know there's Methodist churches and Presbyterian churches and non-denominational churches. There's churches in warehouses. There are churches in storefronts. There's well, this church, this church once met, un, met under a shade tree right here on this location. Is it, is, it really about a, is it really about a place? Now, some of you might look down on this woman, because, I mean, because after all, we would never argue over the trivial externals of worship, would we? We would never do that, would we, would we, Andy? We would never argue over the externals of worship. I mean, churches have never argued over external things in worship, have they? Well, let me. how, how, does, uh, how does this strike you? Have, have you ever heard, oh, the right way to worship is you have to use the right translation? You ever heard that? Or no, you gotta, you got to sing the right songs. If you don't sing the right songs, or no, if, if you don't preach the right way, if it's not an expository sermon... Oh, it's, it's not true worship unless you have those things. And oh, and while we're at it, you got to have church on the right day and at the right time. And the building has to be decorated the right way. you got to have those stained glass windows. I mean, can you really have true worship in a church that doesn't have a steeple? And oh, by the way, everybody has to dress correctly. Man, I'm seeing some sinners out there. Man, y'all are not wearing y'all Sunday best, man. There's no ties. Some of you ladies aren't in dresses. Oh, my goodness. Y'all have heard these things before. Haven't you heard church? Haven't you seen churches split over the externals of worship? Some people say, oh, it, it needs to be more emotional. There needs to be all of this type of stuff. Some people say, oh, no, it needs to be more somber. Listen, Jesus didn't have any of those things in mind. Whenever he, was, whenever he was talking about true worship. I'm not saying those things aren't important. I'm not saying that by way of application, all, maybe all of those things that I mentioned are important. Certainly I believe that a certain type of preaching is important. After all, that's what I do for a living. I'm not saying that I'm important. I'm saying that when Jesus talked about true worship, he didn't think about all those externals. Like you and I think about all those things that we look at, all those things that we see. Oh, those people are friendly. Oh, they're always smiling. All oh, the music is so good. The pastor's funny. The children's area is, looks like this. The bushes are manicured. We look at all those things. I think, I think whenever, whenever Jesus spoke about true worship, he used a phrase. I want this phrase to become seared in your mind. And I'm an inadequate human, and I hope that I can explain this. I, I hope I can make this clear. Because I believe that this phrase that Jesus uses, spirit and truth, captures the very essence of what, of what true worship is all about. And here's why it's so important. Jesus said, you must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus never said, and nowhere in the Bible did it say, that you must worship in a coat and a tie and a dress. You must worship using the right translation or singing the right songs or attending the right location or all of those externals. We don't find that, but we see Jesus saying, 
This is not optional. It's not not negotiable. Jesus said you must worship in spirit and truth. And so it drives us to ask the question, what does that mean? What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? And you have, maybe you've heard this before. I have, I have just like entrenched myself in this passage this week. And I, am, I have recalled all the hard distinctions that I sometimes see where people explain this passage. A hard distinction between spirit and truth. As if somehow spirit is a word that represents emotionalism. And truth is a word that represents doctrine. As if spirit is a word that represents just what's in the heart, but truth represents a certain method or order of worship. And I just have to tell you that I just, I, I, I reject that interpretation. I believe when Jesus says spirit and truth, that he is speaking about something that definitely happens in your heart. Here's, here's a way to explain it. Spirit and truth. Spirit is not a reference to the Holy Spirit, but the human spirit. Not a reference to the Holy Spirit, but the human spirit. And truth is not a reference to a a proper method of worship or to a certain system of doctrine. But truth has more to do with the authenticity or the genuineness in the heart in the Spirit, where you are properly related to God through Christ. Spirit and truth taken together speaks about something that is taking place in your inner man. Here's a simpler way that that, that I want to try to describe it to you. A simpler way to say that the Spirit part of you is the true you. The Spirit part of you, the part of you on the inside, that's the true you. That's, that's the, that, is, that is the real you. This interpretation, I believe, is consistent with the whole conversation that Jesus was having with the Samaritan woman whenever he talked about the living water, and he said that this water will become in him a well. And whenever he talked to her about her husband or her live-in boyfriend and her five previous husbands, this was a matter of the heart. This just wasn't just about the externals of a marriage certificate. There was a problem that was deep down inside of her heart. And when he says spirit and truth, he's again talking about something that's deep in the heart. And I believe this is reinforced by the fact that it points to the essence of God when it says God is spirit. We see the term, the, the term true and spirit really weaved both together talking about the same thing. And here's, here's, what, here's what I mean. And this is where sometimes I, I this is where sometimes when I talk about this kind of stuff, I feel I, I feel inadequate. But the the your spirit or your soul, your heart. This, this is the inner part of who you are. This is the immaterial part of you. This is, this is, the, this is the real you. I talked about this a little bit whenever uh, I, was, I was going through 1 John. When we're talking about the Spirit, when you're talking about your soul, 
We're talking about your heart. We're really talking about that real you on the inside. This is the part of you that has feelings and emotions. This is the part of you that is rational and that reasons. I mean, is there really that much different between my intellect and the things that I think about and meditate on and my heart, my longing, and my desires? I think they're one the same. This, this is the part of us that has motivations, that has a conscience. This is the part of you that laughs. This, 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 is, this is why you cry. This is why you have a conscience. This is why you have hopes. This is why you have fears. Because there's an inner part of you, an immaterial part of you, not a physical part of you, an immaterial part of you that's the real you and that has all of those things. And when the Holy Spirit does a work inside of you, this, this is what he works on. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all these things. The Holy Spirit, when he makes a change, he does it on the inside, the inner part of you. Now, obviously, there are external implications. I mean, faith without works is dead. We know that. There's an outside of us that is important, but Jesus says there's an originating part. And this inner part of you, this immaterial part of you, this spirit part of you, the soul, the heart of you, that's the part of you that God sees the most. And is the part of you that God cares about the most. And is the part of us as a church that God cares about, about the most. Do you really think he cares about our architecture? Do you really, do you really, think, he, you really think he cares that much about the volume in which I preach or if I preach loud or preach soft or if I'm, if I'm all excited or if I'm somber? Do, do, do you really think he cares about our bushes and if they're well trimmed? Do you, really think, do you really think God cares about your clothes? Your man looks on the outside. The Bible says... That God looks on the inside, and interestingly enough, it's that true us on the inside, that spirit, that true us on the inside, that soul. God sees it, but we have a tendency to try to hide it. We have a tendency to try to hide it. This woman at the well, she, did, she didn't come up to Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus, I'm really struggling with something. I have this stuff inside of me. This, I have a relational brokenness inside of me. I've been married five times. I can't ever seem to get it right, and now I'm living with a guy. She didn't just come out and say that, but it was there, and Jesus saw it. God saw it. She didn't just come out and say it, though. And I think sometimes we do the same thing. We, we come to church, and we look at, and, oh, hey, how are you doing? You know, we're all, all together. And on the inside, let me tell you what. There's some people here right now, their lives are a mess. Their lives are broken. They're hurting. They're in pain. Some of them have physical illnesses and sickness. They have spiritual needs. There's people here who are walking in sin. There are, there are all types of stuff that are going on on the inside of people. And God sees it, and they're, they're keeping it hidden. We do it all the time. By the way, do you know that this is the part of you, that inner part of you? That's the part of you that was made in the image of God. It's not the outside part of you. Go look in the mirror. God does not look like that. I promise you. If he does, oh my goodness, um, may the Lord help us. If, 
what I look like was made in the image of God. No, it's the inner part of you. See, God, God is spirit. God has all of those things on the inside that are perfect, that are imperfect in us. See, God is like a, he's like a perfect spirit. This is why who we are on the inside doesn't match up with God's character. Who we are on the inside doesn't truly match up with everything that God wants it to be. And this is the part of you that your, your soul, your heart, the inner part of you, is what has been critically damaged by sin. You see, you can have everything perfect on the outside. Everything on the outside can be, it, it can be just look great. It can all feel great. You can have the best job, the best life. You can have a healthy body. But it doesn't change the fact that inside of our soul, when we were born, from birth, we have been critically damaged by sin. Our heart has been infected, and we cannot properly worship God. As soon as, it, just from the womb, we have an inability on the inside of us to truly worship God. This is the biggest problem that mankind faces. The biggest problem that mankind faces is that our spirit is not alive to God. It may be alive to all other sorts of things in this world. We may become very animated and very excited, and on the inside we may have this drive and this longing towards something else in this world. Because it's not a matter of if you're worshiping. It's just a matter if you're worshiping properly, if you're a true worshiper, if you're giving that worship to God, if you're giving that glory to Him, or if you're giving yourself away to something else. And that was this woman's problem in, in, uh, uh, at, at the well. She, was, she had a thirsty heart, and she was worshiping at the altar of men and religion. And she thought that it would fix her on the inside, and she was just left with emptiness. And Jesus said, I've got something better for you. And see, the moment that we get saved, you see, your spirit is not alive to God until you get saved. Until you get saved. But when Jesus gives you the living water, when you come to know Christ as Savior, there's something in your heart, something in your soul, in the true you, that is resurrected and that is restored to God and restored to His image. And there's something that happens inside of you where for the very first time you can truly worship. Before that happens, it doesn't matter what you've been doing on the outside. It does not matter what church you've been going to. It does not matter what doctrine statement you have affirmed. It does not matter if you've used the right translation, have dressed the right way, sang the right songs, lived the, lived the right way, a moral life. None of that matters until the Lord does a work in our soul and we are resurrected inside and restored to Him and we're on the road of becoming restored to the image of God. And then once that happens, now think about this. Once that happens, well then, there can be all types of expressions of worship. Now it needs to be guided. It does, it does need to represent something that is true and proper. 
But I'm so glad that Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 through verse 20 kind of shows us a little bit what that looks like. The book of Psalms shows us what that praise and that adoration look like. And certainly our life um, and the way that we live and we live as worshipers should reflect what that looks like. But when we gather together as a local church, if there's true worship going on inside of us, these are some, these are some things that we... That we hope that we would see singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody where? In your heart. Of course, it comes from this stage, and of course, you use your voice and you join in and you participate. But the Bible says it has to be something that is happening inside of your heart. It has to be in spirit. It has to be true. It has to be real. It has to be genuine. Giving thanks to God in everything. You see, whenever, whenever our spirit is corrected, whenever our soul is set straight, and the true inner part of us becomes a worshiper, oh, it's nothing for us to sing. It's nothing for us to sing a song. I mean, that's, that's pretty easy because when we have worship that's residing inside of us, in our soul, it's not something that we can hold in. It's like a fire that is shut up in the bones. It's like waiting to get out. It has to find escape, and your life is going to be bursting with praise to God. Whether you sing, whether you pray, whatever it might be, your life is going to offer praise to God. Jesus, Just like in the words of Jesus, just like a spring welling up into eternal life. So it should be easy for us to sing and offer prayer and thanksgiving and worship, uh, worship through giving and to speak and to testify and have spiritual conversations or say amen or to shout a, a praise or to kneel at the altar. These things should come easy for us if in our spirit we're true worshipers of God. And the question I guess I, I, I would pose to you in closing and then I would answer, why doesn't it always happen? Why doesn't it always happen? Why is it that sometimes I don't sense that I'm really worshiping God? And the easy answer is that is because of there's idols in my life. There's something else that has my attention. There's something else that has my adoration. The reason that we don't worship God in spirit and truth, not, not just when we're gathered together, but all the time, the reason that doesn't happen is because we are posturing our heart towards something else in this world. And Jesus got to the heart of worship with, with, this, with this Samaritan woman. Look what he said to her in chapter four, verse 16 through 18. Look what he said. You want to you you talk about a, 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 a ripping a, a truth-telling Band-Aid right off and exposing someone's heart with just four easy words, one simple question. Man, he, ex he exposed every, everything that had this woman tangled up and tied up and was hindering her true worship. He said, go call your husband. You see, she hadn't, she hadn't said that yet, but she said, oh, I'm not married. She still wasn't completely honest. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't have a husband. Almost to make it sound like that she's single. And he says, yep, you're right. 
Because see, God sees everything. God sees right into everyone's heart. God didn't just see into her heart. He can see into your heart too. No matter what we say to him, no matter how we try to cover things up, just as he saw straight into her life, he can see straight into your life as well. And he said, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. They're not your husbands anymore. And the one you have now is not your husband. So Jesus said, yeah, what you've said is true. But it wasn't real. It wasn't real transparent. True, but not transparent. It's one, thing to be, it's one thing to say something that's true. And it's one thing for something to be transparent. That is a question that uncovered so much truth in her heart. She was looking. She had a thirsty heart. And she was looking to men and to religion to fill it. I don't know what kind of thirst you have in your heart. I really do hope that the thirst in your heart is for the Lord. I really hope that the thirst in your heart is true worship. But the truth is, we get this wrong all the time. We posture our hearts towards someone or something else except for God. And Jesus gave this woman three Big truths. He basically said, by asking that question to her, your life is messed up relationally. Then when he, when he told her about true worship, he basically said, you need a heart change. It's not about a place. You need something, you need something to happen in your heart. And the last thing he said was the most pointed of all. He said, I'm the Messiah. I wonder, uh, I wonder if Jesus has dealt with you today or lately in that way maybe it wasn't a question but maybe he's maybe it has asked you a question as quite as pointed as as he did to her but maybe he's exposed something in your heart that you've been you've been posturing your heart you've been bowing down so to speak towards someone or something else in this world other than the lord oh there is no one that is worthy of your praise except jesus there is nothing in this world and no one in this world that we should love on the same level that we do the Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of our heart. He is worthy of our soul. He is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of our praise and our honor at a level that no one and nothing else is. He should be bigger in our life than anything. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. I just want you to maybe spend some time talking about that with the Lord. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you ever truly worshipped, even the first time? Has your worship just been externals? It's just been externals. It's just been emotionalism. Or it's just been religion. Empty promises that you've made to God in the heat of a moment. But nothing real. Nothing even close to being real. Nothing that's even come close to even touching your soul. Do you want that? Call on Jesus. The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Perhaps if you're a Christian here today, you have identified something, an idol in your life. Maybe several because our hearts are little idol factories. We know how to, we know how to make an idol out of almost anything. We, we worship so many different things. We don't call it that, but we do. 
And maybe you need to pray about those things. And maybe you need to offer them up to God and say, God, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice these things to do to you. I'm going to sacrifice and give up all of these things to you. And by the way, my life along with it, I just want to be yielded and surrendered to you. If you want to come and